It's almost 20 months since the first of two major floods hit the far north community of Kyle. Lois Williams has been back to Kyle to find out what's happened to the people whose homes were devastated and what's being done about the little town that always floods. Kitchen, <laughs> lounge, <laughs> master bedroom. Anne Nutson is conducting a guided tour of her home. It's a modest bungalow just behind the second-hand shop she used to run on Kyle's main street. And the reason she's laughing is that there are no rooms. The house is a shell. The walls were stripped back to the framing after floodwaters poured through the house in March last year. A house near Kayo in the far north has collapsed as the town bears the brunt of severe weather battering the region. And local Civil Defence will deliver supplies by helicopter today to communities cut off by flooding in Northland. Hundreds of people have had to leave their homes across the region. And the Kayo Fire Service has been unable to reach people asking for help because of rising There's a lot of people who, who like me whose, whose houses are, you know, just a shell. And, you know, I was in the supermarket the other day and there was someone I knew there and we were chatting about other oh, people down the road at the paintball place that got flooded and somebody was saying, oh, some church group is, you know, donating them a kitchen. And then someone, this person I knew said, oh, those poor people, they're living without any walls and, and, and you know, they've got no kitchen, no bathroom. And I thought... You know, I'm the same, and I said to this person, like, there's 20-odd houses in Cairo that are like that, and, and people just, even local people, people just don't seem to realise, you know, that nothing nothing has actually happened to us, and we're still camping out. <laughs> and the reason Anne Nutson and others are still roughing it is money, or rather lack of it. The Far North District Council says their homes must be raised above the new record flood level set last March. But their insurance, if they have any, doesn't cover the cost of lifting the houses. The road to Paul Haig Smith's house is more like a muddy goat track. You put your vehicle into four-wheel drive to get through it and through some of the craters filled with water. The water would have been probably two metres over this road big flood last year. Sold my property in Auckland, came up, brought this, we were here for uh, 13 days and we had the first flood. No, it came in, well, came up through the house, through the windows, um, everything that had been brought up was still packed on the ground, uh, everything we had got washed out the door and we're still finding stuff down in the paddocks. No one knew it was going to get that bad. Um, the local Marae went down. You know, rise catch on fire, they had drown. Paul Haig-Smith weighed up his options. He could either spend his insurance payout on raising the house or replacing lost possessions and repairs. With six children to care for and the Kyle River just across the paddock, the family opted for safety over comfort. There was no choice. We were, had a house we couldn't live in. Just had to, had to lift, lift it up. Do you feel safe now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The kids feel safe, it's more to the point. Yeah. We had a couple of caravans here for a while, but yeah. You know, we just lifted it. Not much, took as long as we thought, you know. 
doing it ourselves because we couldn't afford to get anybody in. I was insured, underinsured, but insured. Um, so I had some money, but the insurance wouldn't pay for it to go up. They'd only pay for it to be fixed, so I had to put it up and, well, not finish it because I'd run out of money. Yeah, what it cost me to put up was, was all the finishing money in the, in the job, you know. The Hague Smiths are high and dry, but the family's just spent a long, wet winter in a cold shell of a house with a makeshift kitchen and no floor coverings. It wasn't just Kyle people whose lives were derailed by that March flood. And further north near Awanui, teacher Fatu Aono Fatu and his young family are still camping in their stripped-out dream home. We had power, we had a toilet running, and now we've got to manage to get a shower going now. So we have those bare necessities. Other than running water to use as for taps and all that, we have an outside. We diverted the water too, so we can have an outside tap for drinking water. The Fatu family were ordered by the council to move out after the Whangatani spillway overflowed and swept through the house, bringing with it effluent from a nearby pig farm. They returned to camp outside for the summer, and when winter came around again, they moved the tent inside. In a house with no walls, it was the parents' best shot at privacy. We shoved it through the door of the veranda. We took, uh, we grabbed our friends and one on each corner and just shoved it all the way through. And they says, aren't you worried about it all break? And I says, well, I don't really care for break because at least it'll be inside. <laughs> and the kids have their room, uh, which is the caravan, but they also were sleeping in here in winter time on the other side of the wall uh, because it was that much more warmer. On a slip-ravaged hillside overlooking Whangaroa Harbour, just up the road from Kyle, Pony Moore's been batching in a caravan below his house for more than a year. You know, this is, you know, I've worked all my life to have a nice little place like this. Look at the view you've got here. At night time, you know, you look out over, see the boats going by, and magic, magic. I've got bananas growing. Um, I did have pineapples down there going. You know, I mainly swim down the beach night time I'd usually go down and have a quick swim down there used to take the dog down or take the uh, the windsurfer down and have a ball around I've got a fin down there that I sail regularly but the old sailor who co-founded the Spirit of Adventure Trust came close to disaster after a series of slips brought down the hillside next to his house actually I had two tanks up there still sitting there and they were empty but I could see with the rain and the water coming over this face here that we're going to lose some more. So I, I put a safety line up due to my sort of uh, seagoing experience and used to climbing up the mass of square rig shifts. <laughs> I, I put a, 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 a line around the tank and secured it up to the top, but just as I was doing that, the whole lot let go. So this is just one sodden mess and you can't even stand in it when it's uh, wet. And I was left hanging on that face there, and I had to swing back in, and uh, I was worried that the rest was going to come down on top of us. And You're I, lucky you didn't go down with it. I, I, I did. It went from underneath me, and I just left on that face, that hard face you can see there. Swinging, swinging yeah, from the right. Swing, actually swinging from that grapefruit tree, believe it or not. <laughs> Pony Moore's had a payout from the Earthquake Commission for the slip that took a chunk of his land and endangered his home. He's going to use the money to pay for the complex engineering work needed to shore up his foundations, but he's going to be at least $30,000 short, and at the age of 77, he's looking for a mortgage. The earthquake people have at last uh, pulled their finger out and they did come up with a settlement 
a complete write-off settlement. So out of that, I've got to try and reinstate this to, um, which can be done, but um, I'm going to see if I can get a 25-year uh, loan from the bank manager. I hope he's older than me. Across the far north, more than 20 houses need to be moved, repaired or raised onto higher foundations. That's going to cost at least $800,000. And so far, the government has declined to contribute. The flood victims are hoping that'll change. No, we'll go for a walk down to the river and you'd stand there thinking, no way. Melanie Vesey and her husband built their family home on a lifestyle block not far from Paihia. The council had no record of their property being prone to floods, but flood it did. The Waitangi River rose up more than 10 metres and saturated their half-finished house. They stripped it back, dried it out and started again, with the approval of the council. But then after they'd almost finished, the council told them they'd have to raise it. Oh gosh, that was devastating, really. That was the, the um, my husband almost cried. The rules were set. It, we did everything according to um, the build, the resource consent was done. Our bu building was built to code. And now this happened and it almost seems like a big shrugging of the shoulders. Oops. The Vesies can't afford to raise their concrete floored house. It would cost $100,000. You could see it, see it standing there. Right there, and you could put a marble on the floor and it runs down this way. Should the uh, water have been so saturated, the piles have just sunk. We, what we hope, we're suggesting for him is we're lifting this house to get it above the floodplain level, 500 mils above the original high date, and then we'll repile it and do it properly, embrace it, and take care of the problem then as well. Brian Smith, a builder and project manager who comes from Kyle, has taken on the job of assessing the flooded homes. At Harold Paul's place in the Matangido Valley, he estimates lifting the house will cost between thirty and forty thousand dollars. You know, you got to lift it. You got to disconnect all the services, reconnect it all up. Um, as you can see, um, all the plumbing has to be done, and, and then we'll have to have a look at the floor as well at the same time to see what condition that's in. If it's uh, too far damaged, then we're going to have to refloor re it. You, you said it would cost about eight, between eight hundred and nine hundred thousand to do the, the houses that need lifting. Yep. Why? Why is it so expensive? Um, basically, because of all the costs for all the different services. It's not just lifting the house; it's um, decks and ramps and and all the other accessories that have to be addressed. So um, that's where the cost is. But on average, it works out around about um, for the standard pole homes around about thirty to forty thousand. But mm. on the bigger homes, it's going to be twice that price. Harold Paul has bought a shed and put it high up on blocks next to his damaged house. When the second flood came last year, his family packed into the shed till the water went down. He has no wish to move. He worked for years in Wellington, but his ancestors have lived in Matangiro for centuries. They grew their gardens there, just as he did, until the flood came. I wiped a big one of mine out. <laughs> did you have I, a big garden? I had all that, half of that in the garden. The old people would have gardened in this area, wouldn't they? Yes. yes. In the old days. But where did they live? Up in the hills. They lived in the hills. Yeah, most of this ground was all garden here, coomers, potatoes, that's it. Mm. I've actually looked at um, rehousing them up in the hills, but all this land around here is actually moving. It's structurally unsound. Is it? Yeah, so um, that's basically why we've um, not taken that... Uh, of course, I'd say, you know, the cost to put houses up in the hills is just horrendous. When the Prime Minister, Helen Clark, visited Kaio after the big flood last year, 
She said what a lot of people were thinking, that is, that moving the town, or at least the main street, might well be the best solution. The unspoken question's always been, why would anyone choose to live on a floodplain? But for Tangata Whenua in particular, moving's not an option. My husband actually wants to relocate us, but because, you know, this is me, this is my place, I won't leave. Yeah. He wants to put us across the road on a hill, but... Oh, because my dad's here, that's too, you know, I won't leave him. Like many Kaio people, Adrian Poriwa-Smith and her family don't rest easy when it rains. We don't sleep when it rains. My husband stays up heaps. Like, we worry about my dad. Yeah, once it, yeah, when it rains here, we don't sleep. Does he live next door? Yeah, and he gets it worse because he gets up by his windows. The bottom of the windows, that's how far it's been so far. I've got grandchildren, and when it's, yeah, when the weather's bad, we don't have them here. I won't bring them out, even if it's just raining, because we don't know if it's going to stop or carry on. But Matangirau is home. Adrian Pori with Smith's Marae is just up the road. Her ancestors' bones lie in the little Udapa next door. And even if it does flood three times a year and she can't raise her house, she won't leave. Oh, just carry on, day by day. Mm-hmm. It's home. Yeah. Yeah, stayed here. I moved back home when I was nine and then went back to Auckland and then come back here 13. Mm-hmm. Been here since, had my family, now I've got grandchildren. and I don't want to move, I just push my children out of here. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like the family, they, it's the place they can always come back to, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm. yeah. And as Brian Smith says, it's not as though the Poriwa Smiths and the other Matangiro families have a lot of choice. But where else are they supposed to live? It's, it's their very own land, this is all they've got. Um, it's handed down through the generations and that's why they're living here. You know, And they can't raise a mortgage or anything because it's Maryland owned. This is all they've got, so they've got to make the most of it. Housing New Zealand has spent about $30,000 on the Pori with Smith's house for emergency health and safety repairs. Brian Smith says it makes sense to protect that investment by spending a bit more and lifting the house above flood level. Because it's not as if the floods are going to go away. We've had in the last decade more La Niñas and these bring easterly winds and they bring the floods to the north and the east of New Zealand which is where Northland lies and so Northland has been copying it. The cycles will shift and they'll go back and then we'll have more floods in the south and the west but in the long term yes it's going to continue and with the global warming it's going to get worse. Graham Smart is a senior scientist with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research or NIWA. Flood hydrology is his specialty, and he says that contrary to popular belief, the floods that hit Kyle last year are not the worst in history. Dr Smart says the records show there have been equally severe floods in the past, and he says they're going to become more frequent. Unfortunately, the riverine coastal communities are going to be most seriously affected because they, they get the double or the triple whammy. There's, there's not only the increase in flooding in the river but there's the sea level effects and it's it's very um, serious if you have a high flood at the same time as a high tide. You've maybe heard they always, the civil defence coordinators are saying we're going to watch at the peak of the tide at 2am as to what the effects will be. Well, 
when we have global warming, we're going to have a rise in the world's oceans. We're already noticing, measuring, rising in the sea levels around New Zealand. And by the end of the century, that's expected to be another half metre or so. And so the flood peaks will be occurring on top of the raised sea level, which is like what happens when we have a high tide. So all the time we will have increased damages from the flooding because the sea level is higher. So where does that scenario leave little towns like Kyle? In urgent need of some serious flood protection, according to the locals. They say rivers have been badly neglected in the north ever since the local government reforms of 1989. Small locally run drainage boards disappeared and the newly created regional councils took over responsibility for catchments. John Carter, Northland's long-serving MP, was once the county clerk for Hokianga. I do recall that, uh, this is now going back 20-odd or more years ago, there was regular maintenance done, the drains were cleared out, and one of the things that used to happen, of course, in those days was that the local council and the Ministry of Works and the farmers all used to go and take their metal out of the streams. And, of course, that kept the streams clear. And um, since then, somebody has decided that you can't do that, and so, of course, the metal has built up in the streams, and that's part of the reason why there's so much flooding in places like Kaio now. The, the drains haven't been maintained. And so it was a cost-efficient way of keeping things clear and letting the water flow properly as it should be. Um, we need to get back to some of that stuff, quite honestly. Joe Carr, a Hokianga farmer and now a regional councillor, says for a while there, doing anything to rivers became deeply unfashionable. Councils, everybody who needed shingle or metal um, took the opportunity of getting it where it was available. And then some technician decided that it was not environmentally a good idea. And so rules were passed in the, um, in, in the regional planning documents and you had to have a consent if you wanted to remove more than 100 cubic metres. Well, look at Kaio. The Ministry of Works and, and the uh, Kaio County Council out of Kaio removed 10,000 cubic metres a year. 10,000. I, I was speaking to the manager of... Um, what was the Ministry of Works? He's still around, and, and Gary was telling me they were told to get out. When you work out what we've got to remove now, it's 10,000 cubic metres times the um, period of time which we haven't extracted. It's about... Well, it's over 250,000 cubic metres need removing. It's huge, and it was all being done for nothing. Ian Walker, a Northland farming leader and a regional councillor, agrees there have been years of neglect in Northland catchments, but he says Kyle people have to take some responsibility for what happened to their town. Mr Walker says some years ago the regional council offered Kyle a catchment plan for a targeted rate, and the ratepayers turned it down. We have a policy of providing uh, finance through the general rate to do all the planning uh, and survey work and all the resource consent requirements. But uh, as far as physically doing the work, we, we strike a special rate. We physically couldn't have the resources in Northland to be able to do it under the general rate. And there is an argument, why should Wangare ratepayers pay for a Kaiho, Kaiho problem or a, or a, or a Far North Awanui River problem. Uh, so uh, that's been our stance and we tried to work with the Kaiho community about six years ago uh, and they didn't want to actually have this rate and uh, while we did a lot of planning and there was some work done it was, it was small and uh, just basically a minimum work. You basically get what you pay for. 
Arguably, in a poor community like Kaio, that's never likely to be a lot. But the Far North Mayor Wayne Brown says the government's roading authority can take some of the blame for the flooding problem. Transit have not seen their highways as part of the drainage system until recently, until I've started pointing out to them. Typically to improve highways, and a lot of our state highways go across floodplains, and we're, we're on one now, and um, every year they, when they do some work, they add on another couple of hundred mils of metal, and that just lifts the floodplain, and if we go back up a couple of miles towards Kaingara, um, good friends of my wife live on the upstream side of the road there, and they built their house 200 mils above the road, and the road's <laughs> been now lifted to the level of the floor of their house. And so when it floods this time, the, you know, the flood used to come of the garden and then dissipate away under the bridge. But now it comes up higher. Because when they added it, the road height, they never thought to put any culverts through just to take off the top. And then when I suggested to them, the guy said, oh, that won't help. But, I mean, lay people can immediately see that that's the sort of thing that would help. And they've actually now agreed to do that sort of stuff. Since the floods last year, the government, regional and district councils have spent more than $400,000 on what they call urgent remedial work on local streams. Violet Walker, who runs the Kyle Fish and Chip Shop, says the results are good as far as they go. At least her boys can play in the creek. Well, we've had some river, works done, the river management works done on Waikari stream here, which is good. Um, we've had some trees pulled out of the rivers and cut down the willows and that and piled up. Um, we've had Green Lane done. So there has been some works done, but I think the majority of the funding went into uh, consultants and doing more plans, all that sort of stuff. What do you think of the improvements they've made here with the stream? I mean, they've Waikari is excellent. Waikari is excellent because we had a scenario in... September, I think it was. We had quite a quite a big rainfall, and um, it held it. And opening up under the bridge here, uh, apparently there was only 30% capacity being used. So opening it up, it's given us the full volume is able to get through under the bridge here. But there's an ad hoc quality to the so-called remedial works. The water may be running faster at the town end of Kyle, but downstream at Sanford's oyster factory, the manager Peter Harris is worried. The Kaio River at the Sanford's end, near the one-way bridge over State Highway 10, is just as narrow and clogged as ever. All it does is bring it more quickly down to here, then then it dams up from the bridge area, so they haven't cleared from from here down. And you, all you've done is move the product, you know, the problem downstream. So if there were to be another flood like last July's, now things could be worse up this end. You would get hit harder. Yeah, we probably could. We probably could. I'd like to see the river dredged right out to the to the sea. It acts like a dam. It's right across the bridges, actually over the river, but the floodplain's a lot, a lot wider. Back at the Matangiro Bridge, the locals are also shaking their heads. And the uh, regional council came in last time, and they've um, cleared this. Um, it used to be very narrow. You could actually drive down into this, and it used to be very shallow. So they've come in and got a digger and cleared it out both sides. But if you look further down, you can see how narrow it is on both ends. So um, it's actually achieved absolutely nothing. I think it was just a, a temporary patch-up job just to say that we've done some work here. So they've widened the stream bed on both sides There's of the bridge, bridge but, but then it narrows down about... 50 metres down, it, it, it bottlenecks again. It bottlenecks it? again. 
So that's basically what happens. So what would happen if it floods again here? Well, the water comes down and it rushes down through the valley. It um, tide turns. The water can't get out and because the water's got nowhere to go so it spills over the banks and goes in the flat lowlands and that's basically what happens. And then it floods all the way back up the, the valley until the tide turns again. Last year, Jeff Stone, a geography teacher who lives at Whangaroa, waded home down Cairo's flooded main street. He wanted to see the effects of the flood close up. And what struck him most forcibly was all the submerged cars, parked in places their owners had thought safe. They were drowned cars, and it was such a tragedy to these people because vehicles in the north are really important to people because there's no public transport. So the people depend on them, absolutely and most likely no insurance on them. So that's a terrific impact on, on how these people live and their livelihood. Nobody really ever noticed that. I, I suppose there was nearly no compensation because what sort of compensation can you get for an uninsured car? But it's the reality of their lives. And I think that's, that was really, that, that was what had the big impact on me when I walked through the flood. Hmm. Jeff Stone's now a member of Cairo's new Flood Protection Liaison Committee and he says the worst thing about the big flood is that it was entirely preventable. That was not the biggest flood there's ever been. But the reason it had such an impact on Cairo was the main river broke through the flood bank just above the school, which is unusual, and came down and combined with very high water flow in School Gully Creek. So where those two floodwaters met was much more than we'd ever experienced, and that then diverted directly down the main street. So that's quite an unusual occurrence. So the, the main thrust of regional council engineering and it's only a, a, a short-term thing, has been to try and prevent that happening again. So if we can prevent the river breaking through the school and we can get w- rid of the water from School Gully Creek quickly before it floods over into the main street, then we, I don't think we'll ever have that flooding problem again in the main street. We'll have a little bit of water, but it'll only be, you know, like ankle or knee deep instead of waist deep. Graham Smart is less optimistic. The Niwa scientist says dredging will ultimately be ineffective if sea levels rise as expected. The final uh, nail in the coffin for the poor people in the, in the coastal communities is that when the sea level rises, it means the gradient of the river flowing into the sea is flatter, so the river water can't flow out as fast as it used to in the past. The silt being brought down from the hills builds up on the riverbeds reduces the capacity of the channels. It's not a good prognosis of what's going to happen for riverine communities around New Zealand. Northland's Regional Council is taking the conservative road. It's spending $800,000 on catchment computer modelling for 23 rivers in the north to make sure any flood protection it does do will actually work. And it's quietly negotiating to buy dry land in Kaio to give people a place to relocate their homes or businesses. As for the flood victims... I thought I'd be back in business within about three months, but no. And I, I certainly didn't think I would be, um, you know, homeless for this long and camping out. Like Anne Nutson, after 20 months of roughing it, the Far North flood victims are hoping a Cabinet meeting this week will finally approve some funding to help them raise or move their houses. That programme was written and presented by Lois William. Technical production was by Nick Chave. Executive production by Philippa Tolley.